the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock, just like it was Friday of last week. And for that matter, Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday and Monday as well. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering. Some breaking news just a, a very short time ago. An ex-White House counsel, Don McGahn, has to appear before Congress pursuant to a subpoena issued earlier this year. That according to a federal judge ruling earlier today and a major setback to the president's efforts to keep aides from testifying before House Democrats. Now, of course, this is not the end of the story. The story just keeps going in various iterations. There's uh, going to be an appeal, as one might expect. Well, McCann was uh, subpoenaed in April by Democrats probing possible obstruction of justice by the president in special counsel Robert Mueller's probe. But the White House quickly blocked his appearance. Well, the ruling today had apparent ramifications for Democrats seeking to compel other top White House officials to testify as part of their ongoing impeachment inquiry concerning the president's Ukraine policy. So it appears that this is the subpoena for an investigation that is now concluded that can now be carried over into one that's ongoing. U.S. District Court Judge uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, Obama appointee, ruled that the venerated constitutional principles that animate the structure of our government and undergird our most vital democratic institutions were at stake. Wow. If McCann wanted to assert executive privilege to avoid testifying, Jackson ruled, he would need to appear before Congress and do it himself, likely on a question by question basis. Indeed, when the Department of Justice insists that the presidents can lawfully prevent their senior level aides from responding to compelled congressional process and that neither the federal courts nor Congress has the power to do anything about it, the Department of Justice promotes a conception of separation of powers principles that gets these constitutional commands exactly back. Backwards, Jackson wrote. In reality, it is a core tenet of this nation's founding that the powers of a monarch must be split between the branches of the government to prevent tyranny. As far as the duty to appear is concerned, this court holds that executive branch officials are not absolutely immune from compulsory congressional processes, no matter how many times the executive branch has asserted as much over the years. Even if the president expressly directs such officials noncompliance, she continued, this result is unavoidable as a matter of basic constitutional law, as the Myers court recognized many uh, rather more than a decade earlier. Well, Jackson concluded today, this court adds that this conclusion is inescapable precisely because compulsory appearance by dint of a subpoena is a legal construct, not a political one. And per the Constitution, no one is above the law. That is to say, however busy or essential a presidential aide might be and whatever their proximity to sensitive documents or rather domestic and national security projects, the president does not have the power to excuse him or her from taking an action that the law requires, end quote. Well, that's precisely the core of the issue. Does the law require 
And that will be appealed. My guess is we're going to see more than one ruling that conflicts with earlier rulings on that question. Well, in May, White House counsel Pat Cipollone penned a letter to House Judiciary Committee Chairman Gerald Nadler notifying him that McGahn would not comply with the Democrats' subpoena, which sought certain White House records given to McGahn that are related to the Mueller investigation. The White House provided these records to Mr. McGahn in connection with his cooperation with the special counsel's investigation and with clear understanding that the records remain subject to the control of the White House for all purposes, Cipollone wrote. The White House records remain legally protected from disclosure under longstanding constitutional principles because they implicate significant executive branch confidentiality interests and executive privilege. He added, because Mr. McGahn does not have the legal right to disclose these documents to third parties, I would ask the committee to direct any request for such records to the White House, the appropriate legal custodian. Well, Monday's ruling comes hours after House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff signaled he would soon hand over a report and control over the impeachment probe to the House Judiciary Committee, which is historically where this should have been in the first place. But Schiff left open the possibility that more hearings before his panel could be possible. As required under the House Resolution 660, the committees are now preparing a report summarizing the evidence we have found this far should say thus far, but it's this far, which will uh, be transmitted to the Judiciary Committee soon after Congress returns from the Thanksgiving recess, Schiff wrote in a letter to congressional colleagues. Again, this broke just a short, uh, short while ago. An FBI employee, um, a lawyer, manipulated a key investigative document related to the FBI's secret surveillance of a former Trump campaign advisor, some headline news, enough to change the substantive meaning of the document. Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz has determined, adding to multiple reports. The development comes as Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham told Fox News that Horowitz's comprehensive report on allegations of Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant abuse against former Trump campaign actor Carter Page will be released on December 9th. The new evidence concerning the altered document, which was related to the FBI's FISA court warrant application to surveil Page, is expected to be outlined in Horowitz's upcoming report. And Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee could draw up four articles of impeachment, abuse of power, bribery, contempt of Congress, obstruction of justice against President Trump as soon as next month. Fox News was told after all scheduled public hearings before the House Intelligence Committee wrapped up on Thursday at a meeting with top GOP senators and Trump administration officials at the White House on Thursday afternoon. There was a consensus that should Trump be impeached by the House, the GOP-controlled Senate should hold a trial rather than tabling the issue. At Thursday's impeachment inquiry hearing, former National Security Council aide Fiona Hill clashed with Republicans after accusing some lawmakers of embracing a fictional narrative that only Ukraine and not Russia interfered with the 2016 election. The the testy proceedings on Capitol Hill also included testimony from David Holmes, a U.S. State Department official in Ukraine, who described how he overheard a phone call uh, this summer with the president about wanting Ukraine to conduct political investigations. And Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu accused his opponent of trying to carry out an attempted coup against him after he was formally charged on Thursday in a series of corruption cases. Netanyahu has been charged with fraud 
breach of trust and accepting bribes in three different scandals. The first time a sitting prime minister is charged with a crime in Israel. The allegations against him include suspicions that he accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign and cigar in champagne rather and cigars from billionaire friends offered to trade favors with a newspaper publisher and used his influence to help a wealthy telecom magnet in exchange for favorable coverage on a popular news site. Last June, Netanyahu's wife, Sarah Netanyahu, pled guilty to misusing about $100,000 in government money. Representative Schiff is calling the case against uh, President Trump ironclad. From another story, California Congressman Adam Schiff told CNN's State of the Union he was he saw no reason to call in more witnesses to publicly testify before the House Intelligence Committee on any possible quid pro quo involving President Trump and Ukraine. His reason, there's plenty of evidence and he's not interested in playing a game of stall tactics with the White House. Kevin McCullough uh, points out that. Uh, let's face it, only about 3% of American people spent time watching the proceedings. Compare that uh, to the near 30% of American, uh, the American people who turned in to view the Clinton impeachment proceedings, and you already understand something very important. Meanwhile, Representative Schiff, often accused of not taking the process seriously, said of being called to testify before the Senate, if the Senate wants to call me as a, as a witness, they um, then they are... Um, pretty much made the decision not to take the process seriously. It's hard to do the math there. Uh, and also, so far, uh, pro, the uh, pro-democracy candidates have won 269 out of 452 seats in 18 district council races in Hong Kong. We'll tell you more about that later in the program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, we're going to be giving uh, tickets away to the uh, Gospel Christmas at the, with the Oregon Symphony Today, tomorrow, Wednesday, and all through next week. So listen up for your opportunity to win. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Defense Secretary Mark Esper fired Navy Secretary Richard Spencer on Sunday over his handling of the case of Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher, who posed for a photo next to an Islamic State group terrorist corpse in Iraq. Spencer was fined for lack of candor for dishonesty and undermining the military justice system, the senior U.S. official has said the controversy swirled around whether the Navy would strip Gallagher of his trident pin, which is bestowed on SEALs to reinforce good order and discipline across the force. Uh, In July, Gallagher was cleared of serious uh, 2017 war crimes charges in Iraq, including premeditated murder, but convicted on a lesser offense opposing with the corpse of an ISIS fighter. He was demoted from chief petty officer to a first class petty officer following his conviction. President Trump this month restored Gallagher's rank and ordered that the Navy halt its internal review of his actions. Esper and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark um, Miley, spoke to the president on Friday with the intention of persuading the president to allow the Trident Review Board to go forward with its inquiry. Instead, Esper learned that Spencer previously and privately proposed to the White House, contrary to Spencer's public position, to restore Gallagher's rank and let him retire with his Trident pen, the Pentagon said. When Esper recently asked Spencer... Uh, confirmed that he'd never informed the defense secretary about his private proposal. Well, Spencer had asked the president to let the Navy review board go forward, promising that the board would, in the end, allow Gallagher to keep his trident and rank. He effectively suggested he would be willing to fix the results of the board, which is usually comprised of the defendant's peers, a senior U.S. official told 
um, uh, news outlets. The president rejected that offer. Esper ordered that Gallagher be allowed to keep his Trident pen, noting that it would be nearly impossible for him to get a fair hearing from a military in light of recent events. According to a senior official, the president late Sunday tweeted he would nominate Kenneth Braithwaite, the current U.S. ambassador to Norway and a retired Navy rear admiral, to replace Spencer. Well, as I mentioned, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg officially launched his 2020 presidential campaign on Sunday with the release of a one-minute video. However, his entry into the race has posed a dilemma for the news service that bears his name, and editors at Bloomberg have already raised eyebrows with um, how they say they will approach their coverage. Bloomberg editor-in-chief John Micklewaite, he announced Sunday it will not investigate the candidate or any of his Democratic rivals, and Bloomberg opinion will no longer run unsigned editorials. The entry of Bloomberg into the presidential race also raises potential conflict of interest questions involving his extensive business holdings, which go well beyond his new service. They did say, however, they would continue to investigate President Trump, his political rival. Representative Devin Nunez, who promised to sue CNN and the Daily Beast, has uh, said this week on Sunday Morning Futures that the only way to hold the corrupt media accountable is to challenge them in federal court. He first threatened legal action against both news organizations on Friday for their coverage of the Trump impeachment inquiry proceedings. Both outlets had published stories claiming the ranking member on the House Intelligence Committee had met with Ukrainian prosecutor Viktor Shokin in Vienna in 2018 to push for an investigation into Joe Biden and his son Hunter. Both stories cite former Rudy Giuliani associate Lev Parnas. Uh, who was indicted in October for conspiring to violate the ban on foreign donations, prompting Nunez to question the validity of the source. Confidence in the president's economy is at a record high with no hit from the impeachment thus far. Senators Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson demand material from FBI on Ukraine and the DNC contractor from 2016. Uh, In less uh, than a year, three-fourths of the squad is under financial investigation. And uh, Devin Nunez took swift legal action, as mentioned, against CNN of on um, Iraq, uh, visiting Iraq, rather. Uh, Vice President Mike Pence is reassuring the Kurds and discusses uh, with them um, uh, protests with the uh, prime minister. And the United States has begun deporting asylum seekers back to Guatemala under a new policy. Hong Kong elections seen as a win for pro-democracy candidates after the massive turnouts is a big thumbs up. And secret documents reveal how China's mass detention camps work. And on this day in history, 1915, a new version of the Ku Klux Klan targeting blacks, Jews, Catholics and immigrants is founded by William Joseph Simmons. On this day in history, 1940, Woody Woodpecker makes his debut in an animated short, Knock Knock. On this day in history, 1961, the first nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, USS Enterprise, is commissioned. In 1963, the body of President John F. Kennedy is laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery. His widow, Jacqueline, lights an eternal flame at the gravesite. On this day in history, 1986, the Iran-Contra affair erupts as President Ronald Reagan and Attorney General Edwin Meese revealed that profits from the secret arms sales to Iran were diverted to Nicaraguan rebels. And on this day in 1999, Alien Gonzalez, a five-year-old Cuban boy, is rescued by a pair of 
a sport fisherman off the coast of Florida, setting off an international custody battle. On this day in 2002, President George W. Bush signs legislation creating the Department of Homeland Security and appoints Tom Ridge to be its head. Finally, on this day in 2016, Fidel Castro, who led his rebels to victorious revolution in 1959, embraced Soviet-style communism and defied the power of 10 U.S. presidents during his half-century of rule in Cuba, dies at age 90. Well, after a video release on Sunday by the former New York City mayor, Michael Bloomberg, who was a Republican at the time, he marks the official start of his billionaire 2020 presidential run, a top advisor. Uh, confirms the one-minute ad, which was posted on social media, features images of Bloomberg campaigning alongside those during his younger years. Shots of New York City and unflattering images of President Trump is the uh, launch ad, rather, according to one of his top advisors. Along with the video, Bloomberg posted a written statement on his campaign website in which he laid out why he was the best candidate to defeat Donald Trump next November. I'm running for president to defeat Donald Trump and rebuild America. We cannot afford four more years of President Trump, he wrote, reckless and unethical actions. He represents an existential threat to our country and our values. If he wins another term in office, we may never recover from the damage, end quote, where there's been speculation for months that Bloomberg, who donated millions of his own dollars to Democratic candidates in 2018, the midterm elections, would enter the 2020 fray. But rumors hit a frenzied point earlier this month when he completed the paperwork to be on the Democratic primary ballot in Alabama. Bloomberg had announced earlier this year that he would not seek the party's nomination, but in a statement obtained Uh, In early November, his political advisor, Howard Wolfson, said Bloomberg was worried that the current crop of Democrats seeking the White House was not well positioned to defeat President Trump. In 2018, Bloomberg spent more than $100 million to help elect Democrats to ensure that Congress began to hold the president accountable, Wolfson said. And this year, he helped Democrats win control of both houses in Virginia and the legislature. Well, he added, we now need to finish the job and ensure that Trump is defeated. But Mike is increasingly concerned that the current field of candidates is not well positioned to do that. Bloomberg's expected move has uh, come amid increasing concern about the leftward drift of the major Democratic candidates and the departure of candidates who failed to gain traction and talk of other potential late entries. Bloomberg's entrance comes just 10 weeks before primary voting begins, an unorthodox move that reflects anxiety within the party about the strength of its current candidates. As a centrist with deep ties to Wall Street, Bloomberg is expected to struggle among the party's energized progressive base. He became a Democrat only last year, yet his tremendous resources and moderate profile, by some standards, uh, could be appealing in a primary contest that has become, above all, a quest to find the person best positioned to deny President Trump a second term in November. Forbes ranked Bloomberg as the 11th richest person in the world last year with a net worth of roughly $50 billion. Trump, by contrast, is the 259th with a net worth of just over $3 billion. Already, Bloomberg has vowed to spend at least $150 million of his fortune on various pieces of a 2020 campaign, including more than $100 million for Internet ads attacking the president, between $15 million and $20 million on a voter registration drive largely targeting minority voters, and more than $30 million on an initial round of television ads. Even before the announcement was final, Democratic rivals like Bernie Sanders pounced on Bloomberg's pan- plan rather to, do- to rely on his personal fortune. Elizabeth Warren, another leading progressive candidate, also slammed Bloomberg on Saturday for trying to buy the presidency. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to give away tickets to Gospel Christmas. 
We'll give you all the important details when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I want to give away a pair of orchestra-level tickets to Oregon Symphony's Gospel Christmas at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall for Friday, December 13th, 7.30 p.m. That happens, by the way, to be my mother's 89th birthday. Anyway, a pair of orchestra-level tickets to Oregon Symphony's Gospel Christmas at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall, again for Friday, December 13th, 7.30 p.m. We'd love to give this pair of tickets away to caller number three. And the number to call, 800-845-2162. 800-845-2162. Caller number three. And again, we're giving away a pair of tickets today, tomorrow, and Wednesday, and all next week as well to the uh, Gospel Christmas with the Oregon Symphony at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall, Friday, December 13th, 7.30 p.m. Caller number three. Abuse of power, bribery, contempt of Congress, obstruction of justice. Well, those are the four potential articles of impeachment that House Judiciary Committee Democrats could draw up against President Trump as soon as next month. And of course, next month is next week. After all uh, public scheduled hearings have completed before the House Intelligence Committee, that reps, uh, wrapped up uh, on a t- uh, pretty testy note on Thursday. Well, at a meeting with top GOP senators and Trump administration officials at the White House on Thursday afternoon, Um, The consensus was that the president should be impeached by the House, at least among House Democrats. The GOP-controlled Senate should hold a full trial rather than ignore the issue. Reports have surfaced that Republicans were considering even holding a long trial to disrupt the 2020 presidential primaries. Several Democrats seeking to unseat the president, including Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, are senators who would uh, need to divert Uh, at least some of their campaign time toward a potential trial. I think most everybody agrees there's not 51 votes to dismiss it before the um, managers get to call their case. Senate Judiciary Chairman Lindsey Graham uh, said after huddling with other top Republican senators and White House officials, the idea you would dismiss the trial before they presented the case is a non-starter. You're not going to get a motion to dismiss. Well, it remained possible the House Intelligence Committee could schedule more hearings, although no additional hearings are expected during Thanksgiving week. They're off. Or the committee could prepare a report on its findings for the House Judiciary Committee, which would have the option of holding its own hearings or simply drafting articles of impeachment outright. Well, under a resolution passed by the House Democrats on the Rules Committee this past October, President Trump and the White House potentially would have more rights to defend themselves in Judiciary Committee hearings, which is traditional. For example, attorneys for the president could participate in these hearings, but in a bid for leverage, Chairman Gerald Nadler would be allowed to, uh, under the rules, to deny specific requests by Trump representatives if the White House continued refusing to provide documents or witnesses sought by Democratic investigators. A possible timetable for impeachment has been unclear. It's generally thought the Judiciary Committee may hold a markup in which it writes articles of impeachment in mid-December. If that were um, uh, to happen, it's possible the full House could vote on articles of impeachment sometime close to Christmas. That would be a similar time frame to the impeachment of former President Bill Clinton. The House impeached Clinton just before Christmas in 1998. The Senate trial then began in January 1999. However, the House theatric, uh, theoretically rather, could pass articles of impeachment, but delay a vote to send them to the Senate for consideration, perhaps to delay handing Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell control over the proceedings. Senator Graham, uh, coming out of the White House discussions, added that we'd 
Uh, We didn't uh, talk about how to mount a case to defend the president. Instead, he said the discussion centered around how would the trial start? You know, they'll make a request for witnesses, but that would have uh, to be granted by the Senate. I guess that's the way we did it before. Now, it will be interesting to see if it's going to be the even-handed approach that we've seen historically or if the Republicans are going to follow the example of the Democrats and deprive them of the opportunity to make their case. Graham said the discussion centered around how to the uh, trial would start. He continued, my preference was to try to follow the Clinton model as much as possible, indicating it would be a bipartisan even-handed approach. Clinton was acquitted on both perjury and obstruction counts in February of 99, with each vote falling short of the two-thirds majority required for removal. In the Senate, impeachment proceedings would allow witnesses to be called by the president's defense lawyer, GOP senators, and a team of House Democrats would essentially serve as prosecutors. The big um, catch, Republicans would need enough votes from the 53 GOP senators to muster a majority and prevent Democrats from blocking them. Assuming Republican senators would stay united, not guaranteed, uh, Trump's defenders could try refocusing the inquiry by seeking testimony from people like Hunter Biden, the son of presidential hopeful Joe Biden. During his uh, July 25th call with Ukrainian President Zelensky that led to the whistleblower complaint touching off the impeachment inquiry, the president suggested Zelensky investigate uh, Hunter Biden and his role in the um, gas company there. The president's uh, successful push to have Ukraine's top prosecutor fired by threatening to withhold the billion dollars in U.S. aid while the prosecutor was investigating Burisma Holdings, where Hunter Biden served on the board, uh, was the tactic used by the vice president while in office. Well, Hunter Biden held that lucrative role despite limited expertise while his father oversaw Ukraine policy as vice president. If Senate Republicans could put forward evidence showing the president's concerns about the Biden's potential corruption were legitimate, they could undercut the Democrats' central argument for impeachment. So trying to uh, volley for um, uh, the upper hand and to avoid certain things being a part of the overall discussion I'm certain will be a part of what we see from this point forward. Meanwhile, Thomas Gallatin um, makes the point that uh, some Democrats are getting cold feet thinking about the 2020 election, confident they can beat him in the next election, and that the impeachment proceeding moving forward would undermine that effort. He writes, so where does the impeachment play go from here? Recent polling shows that Democrats aren't winning over Americans as a clear majority of voters are now opposed to impeaching Trump. It has become clear to most Americans that the Democrats are engaged in a purely partisan effort, no matter how loudly they claim otherwise. Democrats repeated uh, calls for Trump's impeachment began before he was even sworn into office, totally undercutting their insistence that their intention is anything but a calculated hit job aimed at damaging the president's reelection bid. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi now must scramble to keep Democrats from abandoning the impeachment ship. There are rumors that Pelosi may be considering backing off holding an impeachment vote as a trial in the Senate would serve to further expose the shenanigans that are responsible for orchestrating the affair. The trouble for Pelosi is that if she doesn't hold a vote, she risks angering her party's leftist base. It would look exactly like what it would be a win for Trump. Next up, impeachment. Uh, The ball moves over to the House Judiciary Committee. So a perspective from the Republicans. Well, Nancy Pelosi just stated that uh, it is dangerous to let the voters decide Trump's fate. Uh, In other words, she thinks um, I'm going to win. This is a a quote, apparently, from the president, a tweet. Apparently, 
Uh, she thinks I'm going to win and doesn't want to take a chance on letting the voters decide. Like Al Green, she starts to change your voting system. Wow, she's crazy, the president tweeted. Well, not exactly. Trump's tweet quotes a, a Fox News reporter summarizing Pelosi's position, not the speaker's statement verbatim. Left-wing Twitterverse, of course, immediately jumped all over the president's clumsy wording, as is often the case, and acted as if the substance of his contention was wholly untrue, although it wasn't. In her Dear Colleague letter, pushing back against Republican anti-impeachment talking points, Pelosi wrote this, The weak response to these hearings has been, let the election decide. That dangerous position only adds to the urgency of our action, because the president's inge- president is jeopardizing the integrity of the 2020 elections. Well, the question is, is he and how? If a Republican had suggested that the presidential election was a dangerous notion, he would have triggered around-the-clock panic-stricken coverage on CNN and a series of deep dives in the Atlantic, lamenting the conservative term against our sacred democratic ideals. What Pelosi has done is even more cynical. She argues that if Democrats fail in their efforts to impeach Trump, and I assume remove him from office, then the very legitimacy of the 2020 election will be in question before any votes are cast. Though most liberals have long declared the 2016 contest contaminated, As far as we know, absolutely nothing, not even the most successful foreign efforts in interfering or meddling, damage the integrity of the election results themselves. Notwithstanding the belief of more than 60 percent of Democrats precipitated by a breathless and often misleading media coverage, not only vote was altered by Russian President Vladimir Putin, nor was a single person free free will purloined by the Russian Twitter bot or Facebook ad. And Contra... Uh, Pelosi's implication, whatever you may think of Trump's request for Ukrainian President Zelensky to investigate Biden's son, not one vote will be restricted from casting a ballot for whomever they please in 2020. Kind of makes you long for the good old days when things were fairly straightforward. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. One minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. There's a new article that's alleging that the former Secretary of Defense James Mattis, chief speechwriter Guy Snodgrass, is the anonymous official who wrote a book blasting President Donald Trump. Well, the New Republic piece from former Bill Clinton speechwriter David Kuznet alleges Snodgrass is the anonymous senior official based on an analysis of his writing style compared to his memoir, Holding the Line, from Snodgrass in October. Reading Snodgrass's Pentagon memoir, Holding the Line, the clues to Anonymous's identity are apparent. As in a warning, the sentences and paragraphs are pithy and punchy. Every chapter in both books begins with an inspiring but not uh, cliched quotation from an historic figure. Many passages in both books are remarkably similar. The ordeal of conducting a Pentagon briefing for Trump, national security staffers exchanging appalling aside, uh, exchanging appalled asides about the president's conduct of foreign policy via Twitter, and the argument for why American alliances strengthen national security and immigration policy shouldn't be based on building a border wall. In particular, both books stress that when briefed about international alliances, Trump derails discussions. By by griping about how allies are stifling the United States, <clears throat> excuse me, from allegedly miserly NATO contributions to ostensibly one-sided trade 
policies. Well, Snodgrass didn't exactly deny the allegations in a tweet saying the swirl continues. Likewise, Mother Jones reporter Dan Spinelli uh, said Snodgrass told him no comment at this time. So who is Guy Snodgrass? Well, according to a cursory look at his uh, Wikipedia page, he's a retired naval aviator who graduated uh, from Top Gun Academy, currently owns and manages his own strategic advisory firm based in North Virginia. He was interviewed on Fox earlier today, was asked point blank. Once again, he did not deny it, but diverted the conversation elsewhere. So he may, in fact, be anonymous. The book isn't selling very well. So I think uh, dragging out the uh, the notion that we don't know and who might it be um, is thought to perhaps help sales. But so far has done very little in that um, in that regard. Well, President Trump has signed a temporary spending bill to fund federal agencies, averting a possible government shutdown, according to an administration officials. The Senate passed the bill earlier Thursday, hours ahead of the midnight shutdown. Lawmakers voted 74 to 20 to approve the measure to fund the government through December 20th. The legislative measure, known as a continuing resolution, will extend current funding levels at government agencies because they fail to do the hard work of coming up with a budget. And so this is a continuing resolution following a continuing resolution. The bill also includes a 3.1 percent pay raise for the military, additional funding to support the 2020 census. The House had approved a continuing resolution on Tuesday in a largely party line vote with most Democrats backing it and only a dozen Republicans joining them. This marks the second time this year that Congress has had to pass a short term funding bill to avoid a possible shutdown. September 27th, the president signed a seven week spending bill that extended funding for government agencies at 2019 levels until the 21st of uh, November. The measure included some anomalies or additional spending for special programs such as the census. While lawmakers signed on to the measure funding plan with uh, hopes they could work out a, a broader deal from the entire 2020 fiscal year by this week. Well, that didn't happen. The spending talks have been derailed by fights over border wall funding and the impeachment inquiry uh, launched by the House Democrats last September. I mentioned last week that there's been a piece of legislation introduced that would um, deprive members of the House and the Senate of their uh, income if they did not do the, the mandatory fundamental work of serving in the Congress. It's not going to pass because the people who uh, would be affected directly by it, who would be deprived of their income, would have to vote on it, and they're not about to do that. Uh, this has become a perfectly acceptable way of diverting or uh, postponing making difficult decisions about the future of the nation and its budget. More of the same, I predict, moving forward. I hope I'm wrong. By the way, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito issued a fiery defense of free speech on Monday morning as the high court announced it would not hear an appeal from the conservative magazine National Review in a defamation case against it by liberal climate science professor Michael Mann. Mann's case against the magazine stems from his uh, creation of the infamous hockey stick graphic and a central role of the in the climate gate scandal in which his employer, Penn State University, eventually cleared him of wrongdoing. National Review published an op-ed that called his graph, which displays Earth's temperatures increasing seemingly exponentially, beginning right around the Industrial Revolution, deceptive and fraudulent over its substitution of certain types of data for thermometer readings uh, for time periods before thermometers were available. The magazine called for an investigation into man and doubled down on its stance in subsequent writings. Well, the decision today means man can continue his defamation suit against National Review, which 
argued that its articles criticizing his methodology were protected speech. If the speech in all these cases has been held to be unprotected, our nation's system of self-government would not have been um, seriously or would have been seriously threatened, Alito wrote, after naming several recent cases in which the Supreme Court upheld controversial speech, including the trade um, uh, name, which I won't repeat, for a company, a clothing company. But the protection of even speech as trivial as a naughty trademark for jeans can serve an important purpose. It can demonstrate that this court is deadly serious about protecting free speech. While the petition the court denied was on a procedural issue in a lower court, whether a jury could decide if a claim is um, uh, provably false, a national review will have the chance to appeal the ruling if lower courts rule against it. In fact, the Supreme Court's denial of national review's petition is, uh, petition rather, is just one more step in a case that's been in the courts since 2012. But Alito said protecting the First Amendment meant the Supreme Court should take up the case that it would normally lay, uh, let play out in the lower courts before stepping in, requiring a, fee, a free speech claimant to undergo a trial after a ruling that may be constitutionally flawed is no small burden, he wrote. A journalist who prevails after trial in a defamation case will still have been required to shoulder all the burdens of difficult litigation, may be forced, uh, may be faced rather with hefty attorney's fees. Those prospects may deter the uninhibited expression of views that would contribute to a healthy public debate. Defense Secretary Mark Esper fired Navy Secretary Richard Spencer on Sunday over his handling of the case of a Navy SEAL who posed for a photo next to an Islamic State terrorist's corpse in Iraq. And the SEAL will be able to keep his trident pin, according to the Pentagon. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper has asked for the resignation of Secretary of Navy Richard Spencer after losing trust and confidence in him regarding his lack of candor over conversations with the White House involving the handling of Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher. Pentagon spokesman Jonathan Hoffman said in a statement on Sunday, controversy continued to swirl around whether or not the Navy should strip Gallagher of his Trident pin, ousting him from the prestigious SEALs after he was demoted from chief petty officer to first class petty officer following his conviction in July. The president this month restored Gallagher's rank and ordered that the Navy halt its internal review of Gallagher's actions from the 2017 event that resulted in a high profile war crimes case for which he was found not guilty of a number of of the murder of the Islamic State fighter, but a number of other more serious charges. Esper and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Miley, spoke to Trump on Friday with the intention of persuading the president to allow the Trident Review Board to go forward with its inquiry. Instead, Esper learned that Spencer previously and privately proposed to the White House, contrary to Spencer's public position, to restore Gallagher's rank and let him retire with his Trident pin, the Pentagon said. When Esper recently asked, Spencer confirmed that he'd never informed the defense secretary about his private proposal. Spencer asked the president to let the Navy Review Board go forward, promising that the board would, in the end, allow Gallagher to keep his Trident and rank, effectively alluding to his willingness to fix the results of the board's usually compromise, uh, rather comprised by the defendant's peers, a senior U.S. official. As well, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. We'll be back right after the top of the hour news. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. We're back about seven minutes after five o'clock. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be hearing from Dave Willis a bit later in our next segment. Raising boys who respect girls is the subject. 
Well, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has issued an advisory cautioning both consumers and sellers to avoid romaine lettuce grown in the Salinas, California area. There are multi-state E. coli outbreak. Well, the announcement came on Friday after 23 additional people were reported to have contracted the 0157 hyphen, actually it's colon H7 bacteria strain, bringing the total number of those affected by the outbreak up to 40 people across 16 states. It was also noted that 28, more than half of the people affected, have been hospitalized for E. coli related illnesses since initially reporting the outbreak on Wednesday. Well, FDA and states are tracing the source of the romaine lettuce eaten by the ill people. Preliminary information indicates that most of the ill people ate lettuce grown in Salinas, California. No common grower, supplier, distributor, or brand of romaine lettuce has been identified. Well, first reports of the illness came when the CDC on September 24th Uh, said that the outbreak had affected individuals between the ages of 3 and 89 with a median age of 22. According to them, five people infected with the bacteria had developed uh, a syndrome, a type of kidney failure associated with E. coli. The onset of symptoms, which can include diarrhea, fever, uh, stomach cramps, vomiting, typically become noticeable to people who've swallowed the germ within two to eight hours, according to doctors. Most people recover within five to seven days, but if you have a... Uh, immune system that's been compromised, then it could be much more serious for you. On Wednesday, Maryland's health department discovered the uh, uh, E. coli strain in a box of Ready Pack Food Bistro Chicken Caesar Salad after seven people had reported the illness in that state. The following day, the U.S. Department of Agriculture announced that New Jersey-based food manufacturer Missy Bay LLC had recalled salad products for fear of contamination. We are concerned about the potential for contaminated lettuce on store shelves and in people's refrigerators. The director of the CDC's Division of Foodborne, Waterborne and Environmental Diseases heading into the Thanksgiving holiday. It is critically important to avoid buying or eating romaine lettuce from the Salinas growing area so you can protect yourselves and your family. They say if you already have purchased it and it's in your refrigerator, it should uh, refrigerator, it should be discarded. Also, a gr- also a grocery shopping and recipe preparations can be well underway ahead of Thanksgiving, but several health agencies have banded together to deliver one clear rule before the holiday. Don't wash the turkey before cooking it. I've always washed the turkey, but they say don't wash the turkey. You can't wash off bacteria with water and rinsing it, uh, rinsing out the turkey risks splashing its juices all over the sink. Uh, Experts instead recommend opening a plastic um, uh, wrap and draining any liquid into the sink before throwing the packaging out. Uh, They then suggest patting the turkey dry with a paper towel, washing your hands and utensils thoroughly with hot water and soap when done. According to the USDA's Food Safety and Inspection, uh, Inspection Service, washing raw poultry and even beef, pork, lamb or veal before cooking it is not recommended because bacteria in the raw meat and juices can be spread uh, to other foods, utensils, and surfaces. I always do a wash of um, um, what do you, bleach after I've had meat anywhere, uh, but they say it's just not a good idea. Some of the bacteria are so tightly attached to the meat that they cannot be removed with washing. There are also the risk of failing to clean all surfaces of the kitchen where the bacteria has spread, leaving open the possibility for cross-contamination. A recent study conducted by the USDA found that 60% of sinks were contaminated after handling raw turkey in the sink, meaning that if you choose to prepare it in the sink, it's necessary to fully clean and sanitize the area before uh, proceeding with other food 
prep work, um, bleach, some other sanitizing liquid. Uh, The food safety advice, which also includes tips on how to safely thaw a turkey and recommendations uh, that stuffing um, be baked outside the bird is sure to divide the Internet, just as the Centers for Disease Control did back in May when it tweeted for people to stop washing their chicken. So you can uh, enter the fray or just follow their advice. But there you have it. Now you know. Well, nearly 750,000 Oregonians are traveling for Thanksgiving this year. That's according to AAA. In fact, this year marks the highest number of people traveling for Thanksgiving since 2005. Numbers show 55 million Americans plan to travel for the holiday. However, if you plan to fly out of Portland International Airport, the busiest travel day already happened. There's a myth, an urban myth, they say. This is uh, uh, Kama Simmons of the Port of Portland that says the Wednesday before Thanksgiving is the busiest travel day uh, ever. And for us, that's never really been the case. It is the case in some other places, but not in Portland. Simmons said uh, Friday, November 22nd, was the busiest travel day of Thanksgiving week with more than 56,000 travelers. Simmons said travel in Portland is more spread out because of school schedules in the area. Well, this is the second or third year in a row that Portland public schools have had parent-teacher conferences, so it tends to elongate the travel days a little bit, and that's helpful. Some families decide to get out of town a little bit early and have a few extra days because the kids aren't in school all week. Well, the day before Thanksgiving will be... uh, Close to Friday's numbers with an estimated 55,200 people in and out of PDX. However, it will not be as crowded as other major airports. So if you're just flying to a destination and that's all you got to do and flying back, you may not have as much difficulty if you are traveling on. That uh, may complicate things. Remember that if you're going to one of the huge markets, Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, they really are feeling nationally a growth, a flux of travel this season. So anticipate that. If you plan to travel by train, Amtrak, they recommend buying tickets now. Last year, Amtrak said it saw a 60% increase in travelers the Wednesday before Thanksgiving and the Sunday after. The majority of Oregonians plan to drive to their Thanksgiving destinations. AAA said to um, expect to see the most traffic on Tuesday and Wednesday, tomorrow and Wednesday, between 2 and 7 p.m. And if you're driving east or south from the Portland area, the National Weather Service is urging people to either travel before Tuesday morning or wait until Wednesday afternoon because of snow and possible treacherous conditions. Meanwhile, thousands of airline catering workers at 18 airports are threatening to demonstrate on Tuesday at the start of one of the busiest travel times of the year. The labor union, uh, which represents some 50,000 airline industry workers with 20,000 in catering, 30,000 in airport concessions, are demanding a contract with a $15 minimum wage, better health care options and seniority pay from two of the country's main airline catering companies, LSG Sky and Gate Gourmet. A federal mediator is reportedly involved in the negotiations as the clock ticks down. Nearly three million people are expected to fly between Tuesday and Sunday, the 1st of December, according to Airlines for America. Well, demonstrations are expected in Charlotte, Chicago, Dallas, Denver, Detroit, Honolulu, Houston, Los Angeles, Miami, Minneapolis, Newark, uh, New York, Philadelphia, Phoenix, San Diego, San Francisco, Seattle and Washington. That's uh, Uh, DCA passengers traveling through those airports may witness anywhere from 200 to 1000 demonstrators at each airport. The union says we don't want to affect customers, uh, says the union president in a statement. 
Uh, we do want to get the message out. Our goal is to bring to light what's going on with the plight of workers. We're trying to say that airline companies make billions and we want a piece of the American dream. Well, according to Taylor, the demonstrations will focus specifically on American Airlines, which subcontracts with the catering workers employed by LSG Sky and Gate Gourmet. For their part, American has urged the two companies to reach a deal with union workers, and they're working on it. American Airlines respects and supports the rights of workers to join a union and bargain collectively. In fact, 84 percent of our team members are represented by unions, the American Airlines spokesman said in a statement. We believe in the collective bargaining process. We understand that a new contract will ultimately increase the cost to customers, including American. Gate Gourmet spokesperson said unreasonable uh, and unaffordable, which will ultimately hinder the long term sustainability of the industry in the long run, uh, calling for um, uh, uh, resisting the demands. LSG Sky Chef spokesman said they were not uh, critical of the union, but said the company hopes union members act lawfully as they exercise their right to demonstrate or protest. God bless the big three airline companies, but our folks live in poverty, Taylor Uh, told Forbes catering workers uh, work in large industrial kitchens and are often invisible. Last year, some 8,000 hotel workers represented by Unite Here uh, went on strike at Marriott hotels throughout the country and had their biggest demands met within two months. Continue to follow that story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Dave Willis, raising boys who respect girls. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest makes the point that in a time when we're confronted repeatedly with yet another sexual scandal or revelation of abuse, both within and without the outside of the church, we have to ask, where are we going wrong? And more importantly, how do we break the cycle? Well, in his latest book, Raising Boys Who Respect Girls, Dave Willis argues that we must start with the heart, more specifically, our own hearts, as we identify the blind spots that lead to accidental disrespect, which in turn leads to worse. We can root out unhealthy mindsets uh, before we inadvertently pass them along to sons. Well, this heart transformation is rooted in calling boys and men to a high standard, cultivating a healthy respect for God, for themselves and for others. And he offers a practical strategy for mindful parents who know that change begins by examining their own parts in the story and then committing to each uh, to teach their children to do the same. Well, I'm delighted to have our guest with us. Uh, Dave Willis is a speaker, author, relationship coach and television host for Marriage Today. He works with his wife, Ashley, to create relationship building resources, media and events as part of a team at uh, MarriageToday.com. And um, uh, they have four young sons live in Keller, Texas. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, Raising Boys Who Respect Girls, Upending Locker Room Mentality, Blind Spots, and Unintended Sexism. Dave Willis, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Georgine. It's an honor to be here. Well, this is certainly a timely uh, topic uh, to discuss in a culture in the, the Me Too uh, movement. Was that what encouraged you to take this subject up at this time, or did you see a deficit uh, before it became headline news? Well, I think it was kind of both of those realities coming together. Um, just, you know, raising my boys in, in the world that they're growing up in, um, knowing the world that I was growing up in a generation ago, and seeing where we've fallen short specifically in this area of our, our messaging of, of what a relationship supposed to look like. You know, what what is God's plan for, you know, for sexual purity? How should we relate to one another in a respectful way? And just seeing that this has been a long, long 
many, many generation paths of, um, of brokenness. And then I think when the, the Me Too era uh, really started trending and these stories were emerging and, and many people that I'd admired from a distance in entertainment or in ministry um, were men who on the surface looked like they were doing everything right, but then behind the scenes so many of these guys were, were living a double life. And it kind of crystallized uh, the thinking and, and really called my wife and I to this higher sense of urgency that we've got to get this message right and how we're teaching our sons to navigate the complicated reality they're growing up in and to become men who really do have true integrity and, and to become men who are respecters of women. Well, I appreciate the subtitle of the book because you take into account the, the locker room mentality, but also, uh, with a bit of grace, blind spots and unintended sexism, things that happen that may not be intentional but have the same result, and trying to avoid that from becoming a reality that could uh, derail a man's future. Yes, absolutely. And, and in the interviews I did for the book, both with men and with women, uh, those kind of blind spots and unintended parts of, of some sexism were really things that were eye-opening to me, and I had to face the sobering reality that, that I've been part of the problem here. You know, I've, I've had these blind spots, and, I've, uh, and I certainly don't want to keep having those, and I don't want to pass those on to my sons. But one of the quotes that one lady that I interviewed um, for the book, she said, I truly believe that most sexism would disappear completely if, if men were aware of, of their blind spots, that most men truly want to be good men. They want to be men who are respecters of women. And that was reassuring for me because we see these, these you know, horror stories on the news of guys who've, you know, really just been um, evil in their actions. But I do believe that that is a, that is a small exception, that, that most of what we're seeing is a result of, of those blind spots and things that are unintended that can be corrected. And do you think the, the problem is that men just don't understand women well enough to, to know what is offensive to a woman that might seem perfectly acceptable to a man? Or is it a, a lack of interest in, uh, in, in extending oneself beyond what might feel natural in order to honor someone, uh, particularly women? I think, it's, I think it's all of those things that you said very poignantly. I think that it's all of those things. I, I do believe that in part of our kind of the greater culture's um, desire to sort of erase any kind of distinctions between the genders in an attempt to, to create, you know, the cultural view of what, what equality should mean. A lot of times we mistakenly think that means erasing all distinctions and that men and women are exactly the same apart from some God-given hardware. But the truth is God wired us up with beautiful distinctions and masculinity and femininity are both God-given gifts. But um, with our kids being raised to think that, uh, you know, we're all what we're all exactly the same. I think a lot of times boys have a different way of relating to one another. And then when they relate to girls that same way, it, it can be taken as disrespect. And it's simply a blind spot that the boys didn't know, you know, especially like in a, in a household like mine, where my, my sons are growing up without sisters. I have four boys, no girls. And so we have to be intentional about putting them in situations where they're having meaningful and healthy and consistent interactions with girls so that they can um, be comfortable in those settings and they can learn respect um, with their peers. But then I, I do think sometimes it's not just a blind spot. I think that there is sometimes a mentality, a misogynistic mentality that can be uh, passed on. And that's the locker room mentality aspect I talked about. Mm-hmm. In the book. And that's really what we have to, we have to attack head on. Like there's no, no place for that. And I think that that mentality has been allowed to exist behind closed doors uh, in so many places for so long. And that's, that's where this kind of cancerous mindset has festered. And a big part of the book is just in how do we, how do we tackle that and eradicate it? What are the root causes of sexism and sexual misconduct that we've seen in the culture late, uh, lately? I think there are many. Um, one of the, the main ones, and, 
one of the main ones I strongly believe is the prevalence of pornography from an early age. You know, our, our kids with technology, uh, there's an earlier and earlier first exposure to porn. Right now, the average age of first exposure to porn is 10 years old. So the average 10-year-old boy has seen some form of pornography, whether he was looking for it or not, or it was just a friend showing him. And when in, in adolescence, it's like there's wet cement in our minds and our hearts. And the impressions that are made there as it relates, especially to any kind of sexual imagery, it, it makes impressions that harden over time and it shapes the way we see ourselves. It shapes the way we see our, the opposite sex. And so many young people are essentially getting their sex education from porn, which is designed, you know, for the most part by men and for men uh, to be just a, a horribly misogynistic and objectifying uh, view of sex and view of women. And, and our cultures believe this lie that it's harmless entertainment. And because of that, it's so, so prevalent, both inside and outside the church. In the marriage mini- ministry, my wife and I do, we talk a lot about porn just because in the work we do, we see that it is one of the biggest toxic forces in marriages. But it's also one of the biggest toxic forces in the next generation, our young people growing up with the wrong mindsets as it relates to sex and as it relates to respect. One of the themes, uh, key themes in your book is never trade temporary pleasure for permanent regret. Um, You discuss this with your sons. Explain why that's so important to link consequence uh, and regret to one's conduct. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we live in a world of instant gratification. You know, we want everything immediately, including including pleasure. And um, and when sex gets gets brought into that mindset, where we look at sex as just a commodity uh, that that's kind of on on demand, and then other people become kind of on demand for our own pleasure, then we're really really falling into a toxic mindset where we're using people instead of truly loving them and seeing their God given nobility as, as image bearers of, of God. And so I want my boys to know that, especially as it relates. To, to our relationships, and especially as it relates to any decision um, that has anything to do with sex, that the stakes are simply higher and never trade temporary pleasure for permanent regret. And I'm really transparent uh, in, in the book and even in the way that I talk to my sons about ways that I've blown it here. And, and specifically with the issue of pornography, I was one of the stats. I was one of those teenage guys that really had a struggle with porn. And it it wrecked my, my thinking for a long time. And so I'm, I'm talking about these things, not just in terms of statistics and not just in terms of, of Bible verses, even though those are all very important, but I'm also talking about it in terms of let me tell you what this did to me and, and the process of having to detox from that, that mindset. So I'm helping, hoping to protect my sons and, and other people's sons, um, not only from the dangers that are out there now, but from some of the very mistakes that I made. Yeah, yeah. We're talking with Dave Willis. He's the author of Raising Boys Who Respect Girls, Upending Locker Room Mentality, Blind Spots, and Unintended Sexism. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back, continuing my conversation with Dave Willis, speaker, author, relationship coach, television host for Marriage Today. His latest book, Raising Boys Who Respect Girls, Upending Locker Room Mentality, Blind Spots, and Unintended Sexism. Now, you interviewed a number of men and women for the book. Where do you begin if you want to evaluate, are there blind spots um, that would result in unintended sexism beyond the things that we would all identify as, yeah, these are things that need to be adjusted. But what are some of the common blind spots that might surprise listeners? Sure. And, and this was incredibly helpful coming straight from women, because I certainly didn't want, you know, us guys guessing at what we're doing that, that might be perceived as, 
is, uh, is, is respect versus disrespect. So I asked a lot of ladies specifically, you know, what do men do to make you feel most respected? And what do men do to make you feel least respected or disrespected? And, and the answers were, were amazing. Um, I think some of the most common, common blind spots were, were simple things like interruption. And in, the, in some of the statistical research I did, I, I realized that women are interrupted uh, in conversation and in group settings at a rate that's staggeringly higher than, um, than, than men being interrupted. And I'm just like, well, right there, what a, what a clear example of disrespect. And most of the men who are doing it probably don't even realize that they're doing it. But somewhere along the way, they, they bought into the mindset that it's, it's okay to interrupt a woman in a way where it would not be okay to interrupt a man in the same concept. And so that was one of kind of the most clear distinctions and one that really has made me uh, view my own conversations, especially in group settings, in a completely different way to really think, am, am, I, am I doing that? Am I being that guy? And I think, um, you know, that's one that has nothing at all to do with, with sex in terms of uh, you know, uh, sexual harassment or anything. It, it's just a simple example of showing respect versus disrespect that I think we can all be more aware of. Now, using that same example, were you able to identify the reason behind uh, the fact that men feel it's perfectly uh, all right to interrupt women in ways that they wouldn't interrupt a male colleague, for example? I think some there are some negative uh, kind of stereotypes that are limiting stereotypes that are really being reinforced, sadly, um, you know, even in, in homes and even in schools. You know, I found that in like group projects in school, as early as elementary school, uh, that girls would end up having to take on the majority of the administrative tasks. They would be, you know, expected to be the ones to have to write things down. Um, even if, you know, if, if the, the boys were, were talking, the girls would have to, to write it down. Again, not always, but from an early age, um, there are just some dynamics that are being reinforced, not everywhere, but again, you know, at a statistically relevant amount to point out to say, yeah, this is, this is really a problem that is kind of conditioning our kids to think this is an okay dynamic, that we don't have to treat each other with, with equal respect regardless of gender, but we can treat each other in very distinct ways with the amount of respect we give um, based on a person's gender. And just being aware of that uh, from an early age and how we're, you know, how we're interacting with our own kids and, and the way that we're um, the way that we're doing things in school, I think just being aware of that is, is part of the solution. Now, for parents who want to model behavior that reflects the kinds of priorities that you write about in the book. How do they, uh, how do they make that adjustment? How do they uh, influence their sons by their own behavior? And after having recognized some areas in which, yeah, there's, there's a blind spot or unintended sexism. I, I think that's a great, great question. And it's, it's really multifaceted. And, you know, throughout the book, I give a lot of age specific examples. I think part of the conversation starter because um, I think now with all these things coming to light all, of it one, all at once in, in light of the Me Too and the Church Too movement, one of the unintended negative effects of that is in some of the interviews in the book. Tragically, you know, I talked to a lot of boys and young men who carry a certain amount of shame just by being male because the word toxic has been placed in front of the word masculinity so often that there's this um, kind of subtle subtle, nuanced understanding that, that, well, masculinity itself must be toxic. Manhood itself must be toxic. There must be something inherently wrong with me just because I'm male. 
And so I think that we've got to be very careful in helping our boys to, you know, to learn these truths of respect and to respect girls, but at the same time, celebrate their masculinity and celebrate their manhood and celebrate the fact that God made them, uh, he made them a boy and one day they're going to be a man. And that is a gift and true masculinity, men of integrity, men who live out uh, their faith in, in a courageous way with character and authenticity. That's a gift to women. And that is a gift to the men who embody it. So while we're, we need to be intentional about helping our, our boys learn these blind spots and, and learn some of the, the common pitfalls that have trapped uh, so many men that have come before. We have to be really careful mm-hmm. not for our boys to pick up the message that, wow, there must be something wrong with me just because I'm a male. We have to find a balance of celebrating their masculinity while also helping them celebrate women. Yeah. you. In fact, you have an entire chapter titled, What Does It Mean to Be a Real Man?, in your final chapter, it's uh, titled Teaching Your Son the Right Lessons. What are some of the right lessons that, that boys need to be taught in order that they will become men who respect girls, respect women? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that there, there are so many, but uh, one of them is just simply that integrity is being the same person, uh, whether you're in public or whether, you're, whether nobody but God is watching. And so many of the, the biggest public downfalls that we've seen and continue to see in the news have been from men that lost sight of that one simple lesson about what integrity really means. They, you know, they, they thought if it's, if, if it, on the surface I look like things are successful, then it doesn't matter what I'm doing when no one's watching. It doesn't matter the thoughts that are happening in my head. Um, those things don't matter, but those things really do matter. You know, that's why, you know, the, the Bible talks about so much about those things, but the motives of our heart, the, the actions that we make when no one watches, how much those things matter. And so we need to just teach our boys that same thing, that, you know, that, that uh, God has grace. We, we all blow it sometimes, and thankfully, because of what Jesus did on our behalf, there's, there's grace. But there are also natural consequences for the things that we do, whether in public or in secret. And so a big part of the book is just helping to point our kids, and ourselves for that matter, back to that path of true integrity, of, of living out our life in such a way where um, we don't have to be afraid of our secrets coming to light because we're the same person in public and in private. Mm. One of the things that you write about is uh, how important it is for parents um, to somehow penetrate the the secret world that that some boys inhabit, uh, the world that isn't is visible to parents, that private world that uh, can influence behavior in ways that parents wouldn't necessarily be immediately aware of. What advice do you give parents to penetrate that world? I think perhaps the best advice is just to to listen whenever your son is talking. There are going to be a lot of things your your son will want to talk to you about that you'll have no interest in. He'll want to talk to you about the video game that he's playing or the random YouTube video of somebody doing these pranks that, you know, that look painful to watch. But if he wants to share anything with you, um, then really listen and take an interest. And what you're doing is you're building up that relational equity and that trust, and you're showing him that you are the safest place on earth for him to share things with. I had a mentor tell me, listen when your kids want to talk to you about the little things, because if you listen to the little things, they'll come to you with the big things. And so we've got to be willing to just just be available to, you know, to put our own phones down uh, sometimes and to really give our kids our undivided attention. And I've been as guilty as anybody of, of multitasking and trying to look at my phone when my kids are trying to tell me something. But the moments we can really show our kids that you, there's nothing on earth more important to me than you and whatever you want to talk to me about right now, um, the more we do that, the more likely they're going to be to to come to us when they do have a real struggle or a real fear or a big question. Mm. We are just about out of time, but you, uh, in the epilogue, you uh, feature a letter 
to your sons. What do you say to your sons that perhaps other parents should consider saying to their own? I think that when we can tell our kids specifically how much we love them, how proud we are of them, um, our hopes and our dreams for their life, you know, that, that is a treasure. We might assume that they know those things already, but they can't hear those things enough. And, and to write it, it was a gift for me to be able to write it out in such a public way that, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll even, you know, read 20 years from now and it'll mean more to them then perhaps mm-hmm. than it does right now. Um, but I would challenge all parents to do that, to write, you know, write some things down for your kids um, in, in your own handwriting. In a world where we don't do that nearly often enough with all the tech we have to just tell them how much you love them, how proud you are of them and the prayers you're praying for them and the dreams that you have for them. And that will be a treasure to them someday. Absolutely. Dave Willis, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it very much. Again, the title of the book, Raising Boys Who Respect Girls, Upending Locker Room Mentality, Blind Spots and Unintended Sexism. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, here we are the Monday before Thanksgiving. It is, of course, a joyful time for families to get together around the table to give thanks and to celebrate. But it's also, well, the most likely time of the year to send children and adults to the emergency room for food poisoning. The two don't necessarily go well together. Well, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, there are nearly 76 million food poisoning cases yearly, with about 325,000 hospitalizations and about approximately 5,000 deaths. Well, food poisoning is extremely preventable. That's a quote from Dr. Stuart Hurd. He's executive director of California Poison Control. By following simple handling, cooking, and storage suggestions, families can stay healthy and enjoy Thanksgiving dinner, as well as the the games and the naps that come after. Well, food poisoning generally causes stomach pain, vomiting, and, you know, the other thing, and usually appears within 4 to 12 hours after eating or drinking contaminated food. For the elderly, children and infants, pregnant women, people suffering from compromised immune systems, food poisoning can be very severe and sometimes fatal. So CPCS is offering some tips for your Thanksgiving meal. Wash your hands, especially in between handling foods that are wet or dry. In other words, wash your hands. Rinse fruits and vegetables thoroughly under cool running water and use a produce brush to remove surface dirt. Now, some of this just seems like, well, yeah, but it's a good reminder. It's uh, safest to not stuff your turkey, although, I don't know, turkey stuffing is hard to live without, but it's safest not to stuff it, but rather put herbs inside the cavity and season it that way. Exotic stuffing with meat or shellfish, oysters, that's pretty risky, they say. Always cook these on the stovetop or in the oven and not in the turkey. After carving, remove all stuffing from the bird before refrigerating it if you do insist on stuffing your bird. Not sure which way we're going to go this year. Well, the biggest risk of food poisoning comes from undercooking the turkey. You can't tell if it's done or how it looks, or rather by how it looks. And while recipes give you hints about testing for doneness, such as a gold-brown color or seeing juices run clear, they're, well, they're not enough. The only way to make sure that your bird is cooked sufficiently to be safe to eat is to measure the internal temperature of the meat with a meat thermometer. And it should be 165 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, it may not be in mom's recipe, but bring your gravy to a full boil before serving. 
Be sure to wipe down uh, counters, cutting boards, utensils in between recipes, especially if you have raw meat or leafy green vegetables, some of which we talked about earlier have been recalled. Um, uh, So all of that on the cutting board, both of which can carry salmonella, the leafy greens, as well as the, the meat. Use soap and hot water or preferably a sanitizer, especially if preparing a to chop fruits and vegetables that will be served raw. Use different color cutting boards for meat versus vegetables versus poultry to avoid confusion. And keep your cold food like salad, gelatin molds, salad dressings refrigerated at about 35 degrees Fahrenheit until just before serving. Don't leave them out on the counter because it's easier at the last minute when you're trying to get everything at uh, on the table. Once dinner is over, refrigerate your leftovers. Food is not safe to eat if it's been sitting out for two hours or more. If that's the case, toss it. I have to admit, my meat has sometimes been out longer than that. While store-bought cookies, uh, cookie dough and eggnog should be safe. Be sure to purchase pasteurized eggs to use in homemade recipes. And after eating, take the remaining meat off the bird and store it in the shallow container in the refrigerator. Do not put the entire carcass into the refrigerator. It won't cool down quickly enough. So make note of that. And just uh, in case, the phone number for the Poison Control Center, 800-222-1222. It's the same in every state, 800-222-1222 for help. By the way, trained pharmacists, nurses, and other providers are available to help 24 hours a day, seven days a week at that number. The service is free, it's confidential, and interpreters are available if English is not your first language. So there you have it. We'll all be back and well-fed and digested by the Monday after Thanksgiving when we're back behind the mic. also want to mention, uh, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with C. Bradley Thompson, author of America's New Revolutionary Mind, A Moral History of the American Revolution and the Declaration that Defined It. That's coming up tomorrow. On Wednesday, and James, maybe you can clarify um, this. On Wednesday, we're doing the Squanto special. Is that correct? Wednesday, we're doing the Squanto special. And Thursday, we're doing a new Thanksgiving special that we've put together here at the Georgine Rice Show. So Wednesday, the Squanto special. Of course, he was the Indian that was so extremely helpful um, and his appearance providential to those early uh, pilgrims. And on Thursday, a Thanksgiving special we've put together for you here on the Georgine Rice Show. And then on Friday, the best of the Georgine Rice Show, as we uh, have been given that day off. And I'll be at the Keller Auditorium singing once again with the singing Christmas tree that resumes on the Friday after Thanksgiving. By the way, that's the last weekend of the singing Christmas tree. So if you're planning on attending, you've got Friday, two performances, Saturday, two performances, and a one o'clock matinee on Sunday. Now, on both Friday and Saturday, there's a two o'clock matinee and a seven o'clock performance. Um, but on Sunday, there's just the one o'clock and the 2019 presentation of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. The 57th year will have ended. So make note of that. Once again, we'll talk with C. Bradley Thompson, America's new revolutionary mind. He's going to join me here in studio on uh, Tuesday, A Moral History of the American Revolution and the Declaration that Defined It. And on Wednesday, our Squanto special. It's a dramatization. On Thursday, is Thanksgiving special that we put together here on the Georgine Rice Show for your listening pleasure. And on Friday, the best of the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back live in studio on uh, Monday. So I hope you, uh, again, well digested and ready to join us then. I want to thank James Blend for engineering a portion of today's program, producing the rest, and Clark Hilton for engineering. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day.
Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.